1: Hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People on the Michelle Miao Show. This is where we bring people together from different backgrounds to have a comfortable conversation about race and bring race to the people. I'm so excited about my guests today. One of my guests is our producer, Michelle Miao, and the other guest is another good friend of mine, Kathleen Sadat from Portland, Oregon, What's exciting about this show is we're going to be talking about race, resistance, polarization, and leadership. And we have people across generations. So I'm going to start by having Michelle, uh, Michelle and Kathleen first introduce themselves with about two or three sentences. And because people can't see what you look like, would you tell them a little bit about uh, your cultural background and who you are? So
3: let me start with you, Michelle. Sure, yes. Yeah. So I'm Michelle Miao, producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show. I've been doing radio for over a decade and also started doing local television, uh, an LGBTQ inclusive talk show here in the San Francisco Bay Area for almost five years. Have been the board president for San Francisco Pride for the last five years. Well, actually on the board for three years, board president for two years, going on my third year. And uh, what else? Um, I'm Asian American. I'm, in, I'm, I'm 35 years old. I'm now married. Uh, that's a new change, huge change in my life. And I'm one of five kids to a, a refugee. My parents are refugees from Laos. And uh, my dad died when I was two. And so I grew up in a single parent home in Stockton, California. And now I'm here. Wow, thank you, Michelle. Okay, Kathleen, would you introduce yourself?
2: Yes, I'm Kathleen Sadat, uh, born in 1940 in St. Louis, Missouri, during the time of segregated schooling and buses, etc. Um, I'm one of four children. I moved to Oregon in 1970. Uh, since I moved to Oregon, I've become increasingly active, and the last 40-some years I've been a trainer, public speaker, activist. I've focused on uh, the rights of African Americans and other people of color, the um, uh, gay, lesbian, the GLBTQ community, women, uh, and whoever else happens to need a voice, if I can provide the voice, if I can provide an authentic voice. Um, I kind of think that wraps it up for me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm big, I'm black, (laughs) I'm old, uh, and I am struggling at this point in time with uh,
1: where we go next. Thank you so much. And one reason why I wanted to bring the two of you together is because uh, I admire both of you, and I consider you both leaders. And I know that I think it's important that as we move forward, it's important to know history, and it's important for older people and younger people to be able to work together and share their experiences and their knowledge. So, Kathleen, I want to start with you. I remember there was a... uh, there was a law that was being, that was being uh, voted on in Oregon that was homophobic, mm-hmm. and you were very involved in that struggle, and you were able to defeat it. Would you just tell us a little bit about that law and what you did?
2: What we did. Um, the Thank you. The uh, Oregon Citizens Alliance uh, proposed a, a ballot initiative that if it passed, would have deprived all the people in the GLBTQ community from basic civil rights. We would not have been able to hold certain jobs. It even went so far as to say that people who supported us were vulnerable to being fired or being disciplined in their jobs. So we couldn't be teachers, we couldn't work with children, we couldn't work with older people, etc., what happened was uh, a massive organizing. Because this law, as I read it, was an introduction to a fascist state, uh, because it, it deprived people of their rights, put them into seven, sec, second-class citizenship, and left them there, no means for uh, getting out of it. It became an international uh, uh, issue, and people came here from uh, England, from other parts of the world, to see what we were going to do what happened was we organized and we organized um, from one end of the state to the other that was not without problems and all the issues that affect the broader uh, society also had an impact on this campaign there was a a split between the, the urban and the rural the people of color had to struggle to get a face in the campaign I was on the board for the uh, campaign, the um, campaign committee, and um, it was a very, very hard thing to do was to fight for the rights of the uh, GLBT community and at the same time try to survive the kind of bias and bigotry that existed both on the board and in the community. Do you want more?
1: Yeah, would you say something about that, about the bias and the bigotry?
2: Well, I think it's not intentional. It's just how it is. It's how people think. Um, First of all, the idea that could not be heard was that this was not simply a campaign, but the obligation of that committee was to start to build a movement because these people were going to come back. Now, that was 1992. Now they're back for real. And I kept saying... Fifty percent plus one is not enough. We have to lay a foundation. I was ignored. I was poo-pooed. I was told to shut up, basically. There were other people who heard that, however, and did uh, start to do that work. Uh, basic Rights Oregon here is, is, is one of the groups that started to do that. Um, it was painful. It was an ethical dilemma. Do I yell racism and just blow this all apart because everybody runs away, or do I stay here and take a whipping? I stayed and I took a weapon. There were people who knew what was going on, and they supported me. Um, I would talk about things that the rest of the group didn't want to talk about, like pedophilia. Pedophilia is not an issue for this community, our community. Pedophilia is a whole different thing, and if we don't explain to people what it is, then they don't know. And we we cannot escape the bias by ignoring it. We need to bring it to the front. I stayed on the committee because I would talk about those things. I did talk about race. I did talk about the language being used by the right as a hidden message to fearful people that gay and lesbian people wanted affirmative action programs for hiring. And I just took it on in public, and I said, I hear you guys are scared of this. How would it work? And would it be that if I slept with a guy, if I'm a lesbian and I slept with a guy one time, would I lose my job? Who's going to watch? So those kind of things I was able to put out there and let people examine and come to a reasonable conclusion about. We had other people who worked hard, Thalia Zabatos, uh, Jack Danger, who was in uh, Sh- uh, Linda Shirley, uh, Sierra Lone Pine, uh, people who made films, uh, Heather McDonald. Uh, uh, Barbara Bernstein and Elaine Val- Velasquez. All these people came forward. The churches came forward. Uh, people from other cities came here to help work against this uh, initiative because you could see that it was going to be incredibly destructive if it passed.
1: And so, so you would, and you would so you were dealing with homophobia and racism <laughs> and the people who were wanting the bill supported. But you also had to deal with racism amongst the LGBT people that you're yes. working
2: with. Yes, but that's always been true.
1: Can you say something about that? Because we want to look at that. want to look at the racism you had to deal with within the LGBT community, and then I'm going to talk to Michelle about about how she sees things today. So, could you just say something about about that issue? Something.
2: Well, you know, um, when I first when I got to Portland about three, four years after I was in Portland, I started reading things about wanting women of color to come and be a part of the women's movement. And I went to what was then the um, Women's Center, Women's Bookstore, it was down on uh, what is now uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard, and no one would speak to me. I don't think they didn't like me or didn't care about me. I think they were afraid of me. They were afraid they would do something wrong. Yeah. And so I made them speak. I just made them speak. It's... Been assumed in a lot of instances that uh, you know I walk in and uh, this doesn't happen anymore, but it used to happen that it was assumed I would not know what I was talking about. I could not, I could tell that from the way I was talked to. Um, I have been in a, in one meeting I was called a bitch. I'd never seen it happen to anyone else, but I was called a bitch, and. You know, I had to sit there and think, what am I going to do with this? If I jump up and start screaming at this woman, this fits all the stereotypes that these people are holding. What do I do? And I looked at her and I said, that's uh, a personal opinion, but not a very good political analysis. Would you like to try again? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So she walked out. Anyway, uh, that's the old age, and that's what it was like. Now I can't tell what it's like for the younger people. Because I'm old now, and I'm well-known, and people know me, and they give me some degree of respect in most circles. There are some circles where that doesn't happen. Uh, But then it was very hard. We did a lot of discussion around race. We did a lot of work around race. Some of it misguided. Some of it um, intemperate, without thought, out of anger. Uh, a, A lot of it out of caring. And patience became uh, much more important to me than being right, because I couldn't uh, I couldn't move forward with what I wanted to see happen simply by being right.
1: Yeah, I always say that. Would you rather have results to get or, or be right? And I rather get results. Yeah. So, yeah. Michelle, let me let me let me ask you now. What's it like for you? Um, because I consider you a leader through media, and also being president of Pride, and everything that you did to bring people together to support marriage equality?
3: Well, I mean, I want to be honest here. I don't look at myself as one of the major activists who were involved in the marriage equality fight. Those credits go to people like Edie Windsor, Kate Kendall, uh, Uh, the guys over at GLAAD or, you know, all the plaintiffs. I mean, those types of people. You have to understand that I came out in 2000. I came out (laughs) in San Francisco. I came out for college. And then I came out as a lesbian. And so I am part of the generation that has reaped the benefits of those who came before me, those who came out before me, those who sat at dark bars and who had drinks and who socialized with other women or or men who socialized with other men when it was illegal. And so I walk around with this privilege of not having to... Uh, Experience that type of of time or that type of violence uh, what it's what it's like to be lgbtq in that era But what I did recognize even when I came out in 2000 Was that being lgbt was different? It was uh, other it was weird. It was not normal. It was not traditional for lgbtq people to love so when I started my career in radio back in 2006 it was like you heard everything. You he- heard programs that talked about, you know, relationships, politics, m- even music, all this stuff, but no one ever talked about LGBTQ people. And so that's what I did. I created a talk show to talk about LGBTQ people, but in a quote unquote normal way. Um, but back in '08, I decided to leave my corporate job at Clear Channel after I had successfully found, you know, some uh, financials to support this LGBTQ program that I wanted to do. But in 08, California was also looking at passing a a bill to ban same-sex marriage, Prop 8. And Mm -hmm. the way that commercial radio works is they take anybody's money, but for the most part, it's all conservative money, right? So Clear Channel is owned by a bunch of Republicans out in San Antonio, and so they took a lot, a, a lot more money on conservative issues. So I would go on the air and talk about the importance of voting no on eight if you support the LGBTQ community. Vote no to stop the ban on same-sex marriage. And then we'd go on commercial break and like it, all the commercials were yes on eight. Hmm. And so then for me it was like, okay, you're young enough where you could walk away now and not be you know, a sellout to your community and produce this independently, use your own money, find your own sponsors, or you can continue to be a sellout and pretend like you care, or, you know, that would be the facade, and continue to take money from big corporations on the backs of LGBTQ rights. And and, and so that was the day that I decided, like, I'm going to go independent. And the sponsors I signed up are going to be sponsors who absolutely support LGBTQ rights, LGBT marriage, LGBT workplace equality, like whatever those rights are. And Pride is one of the only things, in my opinion, uh, in America, where we, without even addressing it, like if there was no word for it, we inadvertently or organically have created you know, intersectionality. There are so many communities who come out um, and and who find commonality all of a sudden, even if their racial backgrounds are different, or they're from a different generation. But the commonality is that you're celebrating this f- uh, freedom of expression, of authenticity, of se- the differences of sexual orientation or gender identity, and it's freaking beautiful.
1: Yeah, I'm, I mean, and you're not saying, of course, that there is no racism amongst. Young people who are LGBT people today. You're not saying that.
3: <laughs> no, we haven't even gotten there yet. Like, I'm just okay, giving you okay. some background, you know, mm-hmm. and then some content. I, even in the marriage equality fight, there were problems there. I mean, I had, you know, uh, those who were older than me who were, who had been doing the whole fight since the 90s who said, you, you got to come out and you got to show the Asians, you know, who you are at that time I was in a very bad relationship with a woman who was abusive I was in a, a, a domestic violence situation and I explained to that person and I'm not going to name her because she's actually very well known if you know you can google marriage equality her name comes up uh, but 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 I felt like pressured I felt very forced in it didn't matter you know in in terms of like my safety. But for her, it, it, it was like it was like this thing where we had to win so bad that even if it cost me um, uh, my own safety within my community, which is different. If you're going to run ads to the general public about marriage equality, like you don't understand the, the differences I face as an Asian American person, not just Asian American, but that you know, I, I grew up in a very poor situation, my, my, I have parallel experiences to... Uh, you know, African-American c- uh, communities and, and, and our relationship with, um, you know, things like homophobia. Yeah. Um. And, and that's just talking about me personally, but I've, when we talk about race, I will definitely chime in. It, I have a lot to say about racism in our community.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, Kathleen, what, what do you think are some of the important lessons from, your time that you would like to share with people of younger generations now?
2: Whoa.
1: (laughs) What do you wish you would have done, not wish you would have done? What was the best
2: practice? I think a part of it is part part of what happens when you're young is a function of being young and making assumptions uh, about what you know. And so if I could do it differently, I would probably have done a lot more study before I got into, to, uh, not before I got into activism, but as I started being an activist. I think it's not just history, but it's a way to think about the world. Um, I, You know, I watch now, and I watch, and, and I don't know that it's peculiar to Portland, but I watch some of the younger people be angry with people about what they don't know. And that's just a dead end. How can you be mad at people about what they don't know? Then they say, well, I don't want to teach you. Okay, but you want them to know you have the information, but you're not going to share it. That's a double bind for people. That is not successful organizing. So that's, that's a part of it. I also see... Um, some of the younger people here, anyway, uh, preaching to the saved. Some of them are developing a following that is, lacks a critical analysis. Nowhere have I heard a vision articulated in a clear way. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, when Michelle was talking, I thought, yes, I love the idea of intersectionality, but what does it do for us as a movement, how can we use it as a concept to move against racism? It's there. We're there. I, was, I mean, I, I, early on, there were like uh, three, what, three black women in, in, in Portland who were called on for almost everything for a while, <laughs> me, Sandra, and Elizabeth. Yeah. And <laughs> it was like, uh, yes, we're here, and we're not giving up blackness to be here. We're bringing it into the room with us. So that's been going on since at least the late 70s, early 80s, um, and that's in the last century. <laughs> uh, and we haven't learned how to successfully use that intersectionality as a talking point, as a place to branch out from in terms of the deeper commonality that we have as human beings. Other lessons Watch your language. How you talk to people is really important. And the moment that you come off as the know-it-all, the one with the answer, the one who can report, can, you know, points to Marx, Lenin, Mao, uh, Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy, whoever, as the solution, you, I believe you're making a mistake. I think the biggest thing to learn as an activist is to listen. Because as an activist, and this is my philosophy on it, I'm a conduit. I'm not the driver. I'm a conduit. I'm a collector of ideas and feelings and emotions. I'm a collector of need uh, information to synthesize, to be able to feed back to both the people who need to move forward and the people who need to get out of the way. I need to be able to say what people want, not just what I want, not just what I think. I don't I don't think that I see, I don't see younger people articulating a vision. I see them doing uh, tactics that I cannot identify with any strategy or vision, any mission. It's sort of like, okay, we need to be in the street. Well, what for? Is this the correct tactic to, to solve what problem? So there's there's a lot that I think, could be learned from older people. Now, my philosophy on that is, ask me a question, take what you can use, throw the rest away. Because I am not, I was not growing up in uh, 2000. I was not growing up uh, in uh, 1980. I was already old in 1980. So I don't know what the world feels like to the young people who are attached to their, uh, their iPhones. I don't like mine. I can't find it half the time. So there's a different world, and I think that there's something I can add to it, but I don't expect to be able to direct anything from here. I expect to be part of the voices, or I want to be part of the voices that give direction to the people who are willing and able to listen and then, out of listening to all that, articulate a vision that then, from which you can drive a mission for each problem, and from that, drive strategies and tactics, as opposed to starting with a tactic.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I, lo- I love what you said. And uh, you remember, I, when I was young, I was one of those people that uh, got mad at people for what they didn't know, and then felt I didn't want to educate them. So I have totally changed my ways uh, we need to take a break uh, commercial break right now this is Sima Lieberman the inclusionist with Kathleen Sadat and Michelle Miao we can go back from the commercial break we're going to talk about race racism leadership across generations
3: babe I think we're ready we're really doing this Yeah, I'm ready for our family So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com.
0: Ted Olson and David Boyce came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
1: Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back from commercial break, and today I have two exciting guests again. I have Michelle Miao and I have Kathleen Sadat. We are talking about race, racism, leadership, lessons learned across generations. And uh, before I... I'm, I'm going to move on to Michelle, but I just want to say I am actually one of those older people who are attached to my iPhone and my technology. <laughs> and... Uh, and, uh, and, and I think we have to have a mixture of technology, interpersonal, and, cross-generate- and cross-generational cross movement. So let's hear from Michelle. You had some thoughts.
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, with, with pride, it's just the visibility. It's just to be able to see, right, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're addressing the issues that we face. And in fact, I would argue that, you know, 47 years later, you're starting to really feel um, some of those issues that I think that our movement, the LGBTQ movement, had failed to address. And racism is at the very, very top. Racism, which goes hand in hand with uh, economic inequality, Right. Um, And the most marginalized, most vulnerable of our community are the ones who are fighting back within our community. So people of color, uh, transgender women or the transgender community, um, those in in a lot of ways who didn't necessarily uh, were able to uh, acclimate or assimilate post marriage equality. Let's face it. Marriage equality. Who is it most beneficial to people who had tons of money in the bank really um who wanted to protect those tons of money i mean before that you had uh gay and lesbians who were paying an incredible amount of tax to 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 try their best to 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 legally form their families whether that meant a partner and or or kids now when you know we we talk about um Racism and for me being that like I had mentioned right 35 years old coming out in the year 2000 Being able to reap the benefits of those who came before me having an extreme amount of privilege uh, even as an lgbtq person I I didn't know how to articulate some of the oppression that I was feeling I just thought that that's what it was and it wasn't until college when I took a uh, a black studies class and the professor had asked me who, you know, I'm, I was one of three people who were not black who were taking the class, you know, why are you in this class? And and I just felt this shock where it was like, wait, so just sitting here taking space is like a bad thing? And it just rolled out of my mouth. I, it came out naturally. I said, I think I'm racist and I don't know why. I don't know why I view the black community the way that I do, um, and I want to learn more. She let me take the class, but that was the beginning of so many different interviews in which I had to learn from other people and their oppression. And I'll tell you, it wasn't until Facebook became Facebook and really until Black Lives Matter became Black Lives Matter that I started to really learn how the system... Operates against you know people and again and and how people are still continued to be oppressed before that It was really easy to just be jolly in the streets. It was really easy to be like wow This is so amazing to be queer in San Francisco and and only just a few years later Going through Bush and then going through Obama and now Donald Trump. uh, I Really am able to understand that we we didn't do the work we didn't do the work before that, and, and that's what we're facing today. That's why we have, we're have we having so many of these issues that you're able to see and hear because of social media um, uh, as far as, like, racism and sexism and stories of the sexual harassment. Why did it take so long for people to say this? Or, you know, I didn't know that I was being a racist when I said this or, you know, all that stuff. Um, so I don't think that it's a new sudden phenomenon. Like, I would never, ever, ever portray that now in our movement to say like oh well these issues now we're, we're just addressing and in fact I would argue that the people that I that I thought were you know mentors or leaders in our community and they are and they are but they were able to do things like police people's language or uh, you know or 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 give us these uh, these types of teachings if you will philosophies liberal philosophies in which At the end of the day, sure, they were progressive, but they were also racist. They were also ways for us to continue thinking that the oppressed couldn't really address these problems. It was better for us to sit back. And I'll give you a great example, and that is Barney Frank. And Barney Frank being an early gay politician who always, always turned his back on the transgender community and saying we couldn't get any of these laws passed for so long as transgender rights were included in them. Um, you know that's not a, a, a sample of, of racism, but I'll, that's just me saying like now I'm able to articulate and acknowledge the ugly side of our movement, which includes racism, sexism, even transphobia and uh, and and uh, you know, yes, I said it, sexism already. Anyway, I rest my case. Well I, both of you were saying things that
1: I find really profound. Uh, and there is I, I do want to address the issue of how we talk about race. do we need to do we need to talk about race? So do we need to talk about race?
2: Yes uh, we, need, we need to talk about race, we need to do it intentionally. We need to do it in a facilitated session because most people don't know how to talk about race, they're afraid to talk about it, or they are frustrated and angry, and I'm not pointing to any particular group. I'm saying groups, because I've seen it all come from different kinds of people. I've done a lot of training. So we need to talk about it, but we need to know why we're talking about it. We need to agree on why we're talking about it. Uh, You know, some people want to talk about it because they want to be hip. Uh, Some people want to talk about it because blah, 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 they feel personally oppressed. Some people want to actually make things better like social and economic justice, become a reality. Uh, And I think we have to talk about it with using the theme that we, from the LGBTQ community, use, love is love. We need to take that outside of just our community and understand how it works when we're talking to people who may, in fact, not agree with us. I also think that we are not doing a good job of thinking about what comes next. I mean, you know, it's it's how do you have the conversation, but what is the structure you need to have it? How do we build that? Can we get you know some people in a room? Can we get Donna Redwing, uh, Mandy Carter, Kate Kendall? Lori Jean, Dahlia, uh, in a room and, uh, with some other gay and lesbian people, these are people who have been doing a lot of work for a long time, can we get in a room together and talk about a, at least a uh, loose model for addressing this? this? This community is so big and so multidimensional. We ignore class. We ignore race. We ignore uh, abilities. But we have all those people in our group. What happens if we develop a leadership body instead of a leader, but several leaders that are, you know, speaking for all of these things, and one of them being race? Yeah, no, I,
1: I agree. You know, I don't consider myself an activist. I mean, I have been an activist. But I don't consider myself an activist, but my mission one of my missions is to facilitate those kinds of dialogues with mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. And uh, my colleague, Joel Brown, and I, we used to facilitate a lot of uh, sessions at Out and Equal. And we would facilitate them. on We had one that we facilitated, which was on race in the, in the LGBT community and diversity in the LGBT community. And we did one on cross-generational. And the rooms were filled. Yeah. The rooms were filled with people. Who really did want to talk like, about uh, it. Yes. And too often though, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get to Michelle in a second, because I still hear LGBT people saying we I don't have to look at race, I'm gay, I'm not racist, or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or saying, Well, let's not deal with racism, let's first deal with LGBT rights. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. And I know, I, and I'm sure Michelle's heard that. So, Michelle, I know you wanted to say something. Let's let's, let's jump in here.
3: Well, yes. I, I mean, my answer to do we need to talk about race, we need to talk about race, like, all the time. I mean, you know, uh, when Black Lives Matter was selected by the public, by the way, the public, like, you know, the board had nothing to do with it. The members of San Francisco Pride had nothing to do it with this vote. But the public had voted for Black Lives Matter to receive the Grand Marshal um award you know that we do every year for san francisco pride and i got emails back that were horrible i mean we had to change the locks on our doors because they were uh some they they became unsafe almost death threats of people who would leave voicemails in saying that um i was the uh, i was an n-word lover uh, that uh, I have co-opted the gay parade for the black people. Like, like I mean, this is some serious stuff that, that, that's coming out of our own community. And I don't mean to generalize, but I can tell by the hev- heavy lisp um, that I'm pretty sure that that comment came from. I know that's so horrible of me to say, but I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm queer. My gaydar just went off. I know that that came from gay people. Right. And sure, somebody could say, oh, well, it could have been a prank. And it's like, no, I think that it's a direct reflection of where we're at in terms of racism in our community. We just we've not addressed it. You know, let's face it. You, Sima, you walked the, the bars of San Francisco during the times in which they asked African-American patrons for two or three, mm. three types of of uh, of of IDs. And I. I don't I don't witness that, but I sure do witness some flip flopping of certain parties and, and, and things like that, where it's like the indirect way to kind of not cater to certain people of color in our community. The Castro and, and in a lot of ways um, from a even policy standpoint um has gentrified itself to the point where people of color can only come once in a while for a drink. They can't live there anymore. They can't shop there anymore. Uh, so what I wanted to say about you know race is that we'll never, ever, ever be able to celebrate each other if we don't talk about race, if we don't address race, if we don't uh, in, uh, understand how each of us are treated in this country based off of our differences. And it starts with race. And the, the, I'll keep saying this until the day I die. But until, like, black people are free and treated equally in this country, none of us, unless you're white um, or, you know, you've got a lot of money or you're part of already drinking the, the, the Kool-Aid, uh, none of us are free. So it just keeps getting worse as you start to add on all the other identities And it's interesting to me that someone like Bernie Sanders wanted us to not focus on identity politics. But here we are in 2017 with this uh, midterm elections in which everything, if you look at the news, has been focused on identities. Mm -hmm. First transgender woman to be elected, first African-American, first refugee, first Vietnamese-American, first Sikh. These things matter. Who we are matter.
2: I agree. Yeah, Kathleen, go ahead. I want to say that the most significant death threat I ever got was from the gay community. It is one where I did something I thought I'd never do, which was called the FBI. I had a letter put into my mailbox that threatened my life, called me Aunt Jemima, along with a lot of other black people. And I have never forgotten how I felt when I pulled that envelope out of my mailbox, because I knew then that the people knew where I lived. That was a long time ago, but the feelings uh, I pick up are still there sometimes. Uh, but we have to remember who has funded and who has managed and who has steered the large gay and lesbian uh, organizations in the country. And so then we have to talk about class along with talking about race. Because that, the, the money has been there for the big places, and there have been lots of white gay men who only see one step that they need to make, which is, you know, uh, uh, if they're equal as men, then they don't have to worry about any, anything else. The thing about the difference between now and 40 years ago, 35 years ago, uh, we're talking about pride, and, and, uh, is there was a true political element to the beginnings of the Pride marches here in Portland. And it's been my despair on some level that there's not enough of that politics there, which is where we should be talking about race, where we should be having speeches on people about what this movement, what this uh, great multifaceted, multiracial uh, movement, should be focused on in order to save itself not to save me but to save us so i think as long as we don't do it we're at risk we're at risk of being divided i don't want to have to choose between being black and being gay but i tell you what they see first then i know what they see second so uh i don't want to be put in that box i'd like for us to talk about it
1: and and when people say things like well don't Talk about race because we all have to be together as an LGBT community. I'm That's thinking maybe who's the we all? Is the we all Milo Yannopoulos? Is the we all Roy mm-hmm. Cohn? I mean, who are the we all? Because being LGBT being LGBT is not based on politics.
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Kathleen is uh, that the people who don't want to look at race are the people who have a certain money amount of money or power or both yeah um and and you know that we t- tend to ignore the class structures but uh, when Hillary Clinton lost the campaign I mean, it was a lot of us people of color, a lot of us LGBTQ, queer, you know, non-conforming, non-binary, a lot of us m- who are marginalized and whatnot, I already saw the writing on the wall. It's like mm-hmm. the best candidate that the, Dem- the Democratic Party can turn out is Hillary Clinton at this point, which, in which Hillary Clinton by this time has already done so much damage to some of our other identities before we even came out as lesbians or queer or trans. And to Kathleen's point, you know, race had a lot to do with that right and 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 after the african-american community pointing out the damage that hillary had done and so for me it was like time and time and time again understand this system michelle is that they'll take your $5, they'll take your dollar, they'll take your $2, or whatever it is, because these are the crumbs that are given to you, and the, and you're made to feel like these are your only choices as a queer, non-conforming woman of color, um, and who grew up, you know, poor. And we have to, in my opinion, like, we need to be as radical, if you want to call it that, to talk about race because the people who don't want to talk about it, who want to silence us, are usually probably the people who want to maintain their power and their control.
2: Okay, and so this takes me to the place of where we make our biggest mistake. We vote we for somebody and we get them in office and we don't agitate once they're in. Yeah. We don't show up on their doorstep twice a month. Yeah. So what, what are we doing? I mean, I was we've got to elect somebody. We lost when we didn't elect Hillary. That's right. So when you look and say, well, she did this much damage, yeah. Who are you going to find that hasn't done that much damage in some ways that's at the level that can be elected president? Now, I generally support several people out of Oregon, local and, and national, and they get my vote, they get my money, And I leave them alone until something messes up. But when they come to town, I try to go see them. I introduce myself again if they don't remember me. I tell them what I want. We're not doing that. We didn't do it when when Obama got elected. I said, we're not supporting this guy. We're not showing up for him in ways that are meaningful and that will help him be successful we get passive, we act as though voting is democracy. And it's not. The reason why the right has so much power right now is because thirty years ago they started getting on school boards. Yeah. So they're now challenging what's in the school books. Thirty years ago they've been getting into uh, places where, you know, water is, is an issue or land or somebody's rights, they've been working at this because they understand how it works. And I, my conclusion from watching what's going on right now is that there's an awful lot of Americans who do not understand how it's supposed to work, nor do they understand actually how it's working and what needs to be done to correct that. Exactly. So the election is only just the beginning of what we have to do. And it's one tool that must be used.
1: And when people don't use it, oh, they are giving up power yes. because they give up being heard. They give up being seen. Uh, we got. I'm seeing. I'm seeing the signs. We have time to break for another commercial. Uh, Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, with Kathleen Sadat and Michelle Miao. will be back after the commercial break. We'll continue our conversation about LGBT, race. Racism and what's happening today and what happened yesterday.
3: This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
1: Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back from commercial break with Michelle Meow and Kathleen Sadat. We're talking about race, racism, leadership, LGBT issues. And I want to talk now about we're talking about lessons learned, and, and, I, and I mentioned that I used to be one of those screamers. I was one of those dogmatists. I was one of those people that you mentioned, Kathleen, who got mad at people for not knowing what they didn't know and then saying that nobody should teach them. And I look at today, and obviously I'm not like that anymore because I've learned my lesson, but what do you think about what's going on today? I mean, I could tell you right now, I mean, some of the stuff on college campuses is like, what? It seems to be extreme. And, I mean, I was really extreme, but it seems to still be extreme. So I'd like to get both of you, like, Kathleen, I'd like to get your take on what you think is, is happening right now. I, I, I guess I would call it, like, maybe the extreme, extreme, extreme to the max PC and who gets to decide what's PC and what's not.
2: hmm mm-hmm. This is my impression. Uh, my impression is that... The, uh, There's no value placed on uh, dialogue, and therefore the line keeps uh, being drawn between us and them. And as long as there's us and them, there cannot be unity. And since there's no respect for compromise, there cannot be unity. And since people don't know how it's supposed to work, what they yell about is shut it down. What the discussion does not include is what do you replace it with? With what do you replace it? I'm watching here at Reed College where the students are uh, storming the HUME 110 courses. I, I went to Reed, and HUME 110 was, was a chore, and I finally told my instructor. What's that? Not, What is it? It's, 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 it's the history of, of Western Europe and its oh. impact on America, basically the history of Western Europe. Uh, uh, il- uh, you know Greece and uh, the Peloponnesian Wars and stuff like that, um, but instead of continuing to argue about removing all that, which I think people should study it is can be uplifting it 's interesting everything you learn broadens your scope let 's add something instead of talking about let 's what 's tear down let 's add. The history of America in terms of the uh, involvement of or the treatment of the people of color who came to its shores. Let's have a whole semester on that. Let's talk about the economics of slavery. Let's talk about how the land was taken. Let's talk about who was exploited in this land. That that is a part of our history. We don't have to take the other thing away to add that.
1: It is not either or. Michelle, what do you think?
3: Man, the conversation of what's happening on college campuses um, right now is just so complex. It's so difficult and, uh, you know, I'm older. It's been...
1: (laughs) I know you're not not the (laughs) the young person anymore that I once knew.
3: Um, But I'm very fortunate, you know, to... To be able to interview and talk to some of these people, and I, I, there's no, there's no right answer, right? And and this is just my opinion, but I feel like the voices that are, um, you know, alt right or these these types of new voices that have popped up uh, are fringe voices, and I think that uh, for the most part, you know, college students, when it comes to ethnic studies, when it comes to um, human sexuality, you know, have progressed a lot further than even when I was taking those courses. But who's amplifying the fringe voices? And usually, when I look back at like my college days, and and I always wanted to think differently or go against the current because I was such an asshole um, in college, or I wanted to be badass, or I wanted to be included in something, whether it was a jock group or you know or with the smart kids I don't know I was really trying to find myself and so if you you, you take just what you know from your experience as being a, in your early 20s going to college uh, and apply that to today I think about you know the those fringe voices of those students who might not really exactly understand what it is that they're standing for but that their voices are dangerously being amplified by media companies who are trying to sensationalize what's happening right now without giving a crap that these kids might look back 10 years from now and and now being recorded into history as somebody who attended an alt-right you know, um, uh, protest or had written on their Facebook page at one point something that could, you know, bite them back in the butt, something racist, something, uh, you know. And so I'm with Kathleen where it shouldn't necessarily be suppressed on co- college campuses to have open discussions, um, but it's it just comes at a very dangerous time when these fringe voices are amplified and there's no leadership in this country because uh, the president's just going to respond to some of these things and say, uh, well, it's the other side who's rough in the feathers too versus like a president who might... Respond in a different way. So, um, you know, those are those are my thoughts. It's very, very, very complicated, and, and uh, at the same time, I don't I don't want to magnify it uh, to the point that I think it's a problem in our country.
2: What is it you don't want to magnify?
3: I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to magnify or make it seem as if uh, you know it's it's just college students who are experiencing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. a difference in opinion because mm-hmm. I think that you know with the lack of leadership from our president. Um, it, it, it not only is it; it's a trickle-down effect, is what I'm just trying to say. Mm-hmm. So I know that there are a lot of people out there who are saying, "Oh my God, college students are unruly right now. They're crazy. There, there are alt-right students and, and and conservative students and people who want to strip away freedom of speech and you know all this stuff. It, it's it, some of it isn't new. Some freedom of speech has always been a place in college campuses where we can have uh, conversations on both sides. Right. But what's dangerous today is that we're almost Making it seem like it's just the college students' problems. I think that it's the country, it's the nation, and mm-hmm. let's let's provide some real leaders instead of instead of Ann Coulter or Milo Yiannopoulos who are going to stand for the freedom of speech.
1: Mm-hmm. What, but what, and what, about, but what? And what about some of these people who I call extreme social justice people? You know, and I, I look at, I mean, I look at like a like say. White people. I mean, not, not that all white people are the same, of course. I mean, I don't want anybody to think I'm talking about a monolith here. But I find it a little irritating when I'm talking to somebody who's white who has to keep on telling me how all white people are racist and they're going to educate me. Or they feel like they have to go around, like, apologizing. And I think some of these people are just really, like, angry, but instead, you know, they they cover up their anger by just always apologizing. I mean, this is my trip, but always apologizing, and um, they walk around kind of, like, wimpy and ten steps behind people of color because they're not worthy I just don't think that that is going to bring the conversation on race forward at it all. It makes me
2: sick. Yeah. It makes me ill. Uh, it's a deference and a fear. It is not healthy. It is not whole. Because these people are sacrificing their own self-esteem, their own thinking abilities, to an Id- a fear of being thought of as racist are thinking of themselves as racist. Yes, okay, we've got this. We're racist. We're biased. You're, bi- you're biased. I'm biased. Everybody is. What do we do with that? I, you know, a part of the, one of the things that the other lessons learned in the last some years is recognize the limits of your power. And when people come to me with that stuff, I might ask a question or two. If they're not listening and they don't want to learn, I'm done because the limits of my power
3: <laughs> kick in.
2: I have no power to change this person. They don't want to be changed. They don't want to, they don't want to learn. I don't know that you can ever do anything with, with that, because there are people who I believe enjoy being um, subservient in some ways and, and suffering. I think that's a model that some people have for goodness, yeah. is to suffer. So I'm, I'm not, I can't do anything with that. I think in the main... What I'm concerned about is those of us who want to participate in helping them suffer. I'm into let's get as healthy as we can be and move forward together.
1: And I I know, and and I'm going to say this, and then we're getting close to the end, where you talked about people, I I saw Facebook posts where uh, you were quoting somebody else. You were talking about why people like John Brown, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, Reverend James Reeb, People, white people who've actually put themselves mm-hmm, on the forefront, mm-hmm. Viola Liuzzo, who've lost their lives. Yes. And those are people who are part of the big we. It's a, you know, yes. and, and unless we see each other as, unless we could be peers, we really can't move everybody
2: ahead. Well, we, and I'll say this about a lot of the African-American people I know. They talk as though we got out of slavery by ourselves. We did not have the power to get ourselves out of slavery. We had to work with other people. And there are lots of things that we don't know about history that we assume we know, and we draw a clean line. And there is no clean line. There were black people who owned slaves. Somebody was making noise a few weeks ago about Indians who owned slaves. Yes, make some noise about the black people who owned slaves. You cannot have the headset that people had 200 years ago. You can look at it, try to understand it, Try to use what you can get from that to move forward. What I know is there's a meanness in the world, and right now it's the meanest I've ever seen it. And we've got to work on getting rid of it, and we've got to do it together.